if you'll find your way back to Matthew 12, and then rotate back to the left, I just want to read a few verses out of Psalm 40, which will become clear as we go along, Lord willing, and we'll touch on again towards the end. So find find your place in Matthew 12. Put your ribbon or a piece of paper there. Turn back to Psalm or turn backwards to Psalm 40. Again, just a, a few verses out of here, not the whole psalm. Verse 1 of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who takes the Lord, his, who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. Jump down to um, verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me... I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Pray with me. Lord, may the words of our lips and the meditations of our heart do well to please you, to exalt you, and to serve us, and to drawing us to Christ. 
and His holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. So back to Matthew 12. Uh, as I slipped there in the beginning and said Matthew 11, as we've, we finally finished Matthew 11, and uh, I had been helped greatly walking through that, we saw in Matthew 11 the rejection of Christ. People rejecting Him, His declarations of who, is, who He was, who He is, His works, His miracles, His purpose. But then He still is calling people to Himself. And He ends Matthew 11 by calling people to find rest in Him. To find rest in Him. The weary, the heavy laden, the burdened, to come and rest in Him. Well, Matthew sees fit in chapter 12 to then sort of dive deeper into the rejection of Christ. And specifically, the battle or the, the, the fighting and argument, argumentation that is going to take place from here until the point, well, even after the uh, death of Christ, where the Pharisees are looking and striving to attack Christ and his ministry. And it's interesting whether Matthew, guided by the Spirit, wrote it this way, or if the Pharisees, in hearing Jesus' teaching in Matthew 11, decides, decides to strike first at his teaching about rest. Because they go and they press on him in order to accuse him about dealings in the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest. Now, as we, this happens in verse 1 through 14, we're going to speed walk through them and then find some application for us today. But here's what I want you to know going into this. We're not going to talk much about the Sabbath. Because the point that's being made isn't about the Sabbath. Jesus, while they accuse him about things that are happening and, and look to, to corner him about teachings and doctrines on the Sabbath, what Jesus presses back on them isn't about the Sabbath. It's about something greater. Uh, so we're actually going to come back to Sabbath doctrine, not this next month, February, but in March, because we'll be at the fourth commandment in our catechism teaching, which is the teaching, the commandment on Sabbath. So we'll come back to that in the beginning of March and dive into that a little bit more. So just to prepare you for that. So look, look at verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields of the Sabbath on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. Take note of that word hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So Jesus and his disciples, his followers, are walking to the field, plucking grain to eat because of their hunger. Verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw it, the leader of the Jews, the religious leaders, the political leaders, that's the Pharisees. When they saw it, they said to him, look, your, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, you remember in, was it Matthew 9? We already had a clash with Jesus and the Pharisees when they accused him of eating with sinners and tax collectors. 
And so they're, they're following back up with another accusation, not necessarily to Jesus, but to his disciples. Look, your disciples are doing, this is a very important phrase, what is not lawful? What is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So one of the big things about this section is, there, is determining lawfulness. Who determines what is and isn't lawful? And what use do we have of those things that tell us what is and isn't lawful? So they come at him, come at his disciples. What they're doing is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, just so we know, because we've got to have a, a sort of a baseline for understanding Sabbath to understand what's going on here. And let me just read the, the fourth commandment from Deuteronomy. Observe, observe the Sabbath day. Sabbath, most basic, means rest. Okay? To keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor or toil or work. And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, on the Israel calendar, on the Jewish calendar, that day was the last day of the week. Saturday, all right? Sunday marked the first day of the week. Saturday marked the last day of the week. And just so that you know, that day actually started on Friday evening, right? It started, the day started at sundown. The last day of the week started as we would know on Friday evening and would go till sundown Saturday evening. They were to do no work, um, but to keep the day holy and find rest in the Lord, um, well, we won't go go there quite yet. So they're saying that Jesus and his disciples are breaking this commandment. That they are not keeping the day holy, but they are profaning the holy Sabbath day. Now what we see in Jesus is four responses. He gives four quick responses. And they are, you could put them in two categories. And these categories argue from the lesser to the greater, okay? Sort of a, a, a Hebrew argument from the book of Hebrews that there is the lesser or the shadow and then the greater, the substance. Um, but the focus on all of the argument is to point them, where do you think? To himself. To point them to himself and his work and his authority, which if you haven't picked this up, Matthew is hammering that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, is the son of man. Daniel, 
Him who has been given all authority, a kingdom, a dominion, a rule, a power. And that all kingdoms will tremble and fall underneath his kingdom. So he's wanting to bring them to this idea. Uh, he, he's going to talk, talk to them about David and show them that he is a greater David. He's going to show them about the temple and say he is a greater temple. He's going to show them that he is Lord of the Sabbath because he is Lord of all. Now, the first argument comes from verse 3. And these first, the first two, again, as I said, are, um, or, or these categories break down into the, into the two, the, the, the lesser and the greater. Verse 3. He said to them, have you not read? So his first argument is, is revealing their disconnect with Scripture. He, he reveals their disconnect with Scripture. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? What were the disciples doing? They were walking through the fields, plucking the grain because they were hungry. So he connects an incident with David when David was hungry. And those who were with him, so David and his men. Verse 4, David entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence Look very closely, which was not lawful. So what did they say to Jesus and his disciples? What you are doing is not lawful. Jesus responds with uh, an account of David where David is in uh, is in the temple and he is given bread that is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who are with him, but only the priest. And so Jesus says, all right, you've made your your point. What we're doing is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, but let's evaluate your position as it relates to what God has said. So we understand that their disconnect from Scripture was not just a disconnect from the, the history of Israel, but was a disconnect of what God had said. And here's what Jesus wanted them to understand. As David was found to do something unlawful, Not one time in all of Scripture did God reprimand what he did. He never once said, that was wrong, David. Nor did he say to the priest who gave David and his men the bread, which was not lawful for them to take, that they were wrong. Not once has the word of God condemned David or the priest who gave David and his men the bread that they were doing something unlawful. The scriptures do not reprimand anyone when they find themselves doing works of necessity. The Sabbath was never intended nor any law or, or word that, or command that God has given to withhold from anyone anything of necessity. Not once. See, what the Pharisees were doing is they took the word of God and they twisted and misapplied. They placed undue burdens upon people 
you think about the first Sabbath. Does anyone know when the first Sabbath took place? I could be wrong on this, but I didn't. It was in the wilderness, right? When the manna fell. And God, through Moses, told Israel, do not go and collect or work on the Sabbath. He did not say, I'm going to burden you to the fact that you can't eat on the Sabbath. No, the whole point was, trust me in the food that I'm providing for you. For six days, go and collect. And on the seventh day, you will eat. So it was about trusting in the Lord, resting in him, and saying, if I'm obedient to him, he will provide for me even the day that I am not at work. It was not to give this unlaw. It wasn't to get some the, um, the, the smiths over on the far end of, of the, the camp that they would starve on Sunday because they forgot to go and collect on Saturday. That was not the point of the Sabbath, but the point was to find their trust in working as God had commanded them uh, for the first six days of the week. The Pharisees established laws, regulations, out of their disconnect of the Word of God, because here's what we're going to understand, to elevate their own righteousness. They placed these undue burdens upon people to elevate their own righteousness. And so we get from this argument that, and this is about as close as we'll get to discussing the Sabbath in principle, that works of necessity the church has always deemed to be lawful to do on the Sabbath. Works of necessity. He makes a second argument, very similar to the first. So the first, the first argument was their disconnect from Scripture. Their, their second, the second argument was a disconnect from the law. Verse five, he says, "Have you not read?" So he started his first argument in, in verse three, "Have you not read?" and gives uh, the account of David. Then he says, "Have you not read in the law?" Uh, how on the Sabbath, the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. Now, read again that verse, verse 5. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? This isn't a story about how one time they accidentally did something or they had to go do something that profaned the Sabbath. No, actually in the giving of the law... God instructs the priest to work on the Sabbath. And they, as Jesus says, profane the law or the regulation of the Sabbath. How could that be? How could a priest profane the Sabbath yet still not be doing something unlawful? Well, What Jesus is expressing is that the regulation of worship superseded that of the law or regulation of the Sabbath. He's saying, God was saying, as giving an instruction to the priest to break the Sabbath in order to perform acts of worship, that the law and regulation of worship is more important 
or supersedes that of the law of the Sabbath. Because we're getting to this, we're getting to this, and we're hearing it all the way throughout. That again, the Sabbath, or, or man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And that's what's ha- and that comes from um, Mark or Luke's account. I can't remember. But what what the what the Pharisees are doing is they're taking a rule and their regulation and they're twisting it and turning it so much that it is creating the opposite of its intention. Rest and trust in Christ, in the Lord, and they're causing it to ramp up. Um, actually work in the opposite sense of doing what they need to do rightly as opposed to trusting in the Lord completely. Hence, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, not the Pharisees. Uh, What the Pharisees are doing is they're absolutists. The Pharisees are more strict in the law than God himself. That's an odd statement, but it's a true statement. They they are stricter than God himself. The priest broke the Sabbath and the working in the temple. The temple's duties the temple duties superseded the Sabbath regulation. But Jesus goes a little bit further in his argument as he says the temple the, the the temple worship is greater than the Sabbath regulation. He says something even further. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. We know we know the Pharisees view of the temple. What did they turn it into? A den of thieves. So from the beginning, the Pharisees have degraded or desolated that which is uh, eternally valuable. But then they do the same thing to the true temple who stands before them. They have elevated themselves not only above Sabbath, but of temple and of the Son of God. They've elevated themselves for the sake of gain and self-righteousness. They're disconnected from the law. They're disconnected from the scriptures. Jesus would tell them in John, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Which connects us to the third argument, verse 7. And if you had known what this means, quote, I, being the Lord, desire mercy and not sacrifice. You have not condemned the guiltless. So their disconnect from the scripture, their disconnect from the law shows us that obviously they're disconnected from God. He says, if you would have known what this means, and he quotes God and says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you would have known what this means, you would not have condemned my disciples who are guiltless. They have broke no Sabbath law. Jesus 
is telling them, God has spoken his desire and you do not know it. You do not know God. David was a man after God's own heart. And Jesus is saying, you are so far from the heart of God because the desire of God is mercy, not law-keeping, not ritualism. In the eyes of God, my disciples, Jesus says, are guiltless, but now you condemn them. So what is Jesus doing? He is now condemning those who think they are guiltless. We'll come back to that quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, towards the end here. Argument number four, the authority of Jesus. Verse eight, he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now they're very aware by now that when he says the Son of Man, that he is referring to himself. There's no doubt about it. It's happened enough, as much has gone on, as much has been said, as much has been done, they know that he is calling himself the one from Daniel chapter 12, if I got that right. He is Lord of all. He is the connection to the word and the law. They don't get him, so they cannot be connected to the word and the law. They don't understand him, so of course they profane the temple and even twist the Sabbath. They cannot make sense of any of it because they cannot make sense of him. He is the authority. He gives the correct meaning and interpretation of the Sabbath law and regulation. You understand, they're saying, we understand the Sabbath law and regulations better than you. And he says, no, no, no. I am Lord of the Sabbath. You listen to me. You hear what I say. With Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath, you can go and rest as much as you want on whatever day you choose. But unless you bow the knee to the Lord of the Sabbath, you find yourselves in no condition except that of a Pharisee. You cannot rest yourself, follow enough rules and regulations in order to be right before the Lord, but you must bow the knee to the Lord of all, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, his, His authority, His personhood, His ministry is the meaning of the Sabbath. It is the point of the Sabbath. And you think about think about prior to the New Testament. Was Jesus Lord of the Sabbath then? Of course. Could they have could they have been obedient to the Sabbath even not knowing the name of Jesus? Of course. Because what was the point? The point of the Sabbath rest was for them to stop working and trust God. How did Jesus finish Matthew 11? 
Stop working and trust me. There's a verse. Uh, I'll just read it to you. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. Help us connect Christ to the Sabbath. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So let no one condemn you on these accounts, on what you eat, on what you celebrate, or your keeping of the Sabbath. Let no one pass judgment on you. And here's why. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You can be as strict as you want on whatever day of the week you you think. But apart from Christ, you miss the point. Verse 9, he went on from there and entered the synagogue. Now here's where the confusion or the disconnect is really revealed. The heart of the Pharisees. Verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So here is how disconnected the Pharisees were from the word of God, the law of God, and God himself. They see Jesus come in the synagogue. They get in a huddle, say, we've got to figure out a way to accuse him. we got to figure out a way to trap him. And someone goes, did you see that guy with a withered hand over there? Let's, let's trap Jesus by seeing if he'll actually heal him. Because today's the Sabbath. They were going to use a disabled man to accuse the Son of God. That's how withered their hearts were. How disconnected from God they were. In order to accomplish their desire to disgrace Jesus, to discredit him, they show what they truly think of human beings. That aren't themselves. Verse 11. Jesus said to them. Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not take hold of it. And lift it out. And here's one of those times. Where you understand that. Jesus knows the hearts of man. All men. But also those who are in front of him. This is the Son of God acting in His divinity. He knew their hearts. He knew the answer to to this question. If Pharisees, if you had a sheep and it fell into the pit on a Sabbath, will will you not take hold of it and lift it out? And he knew the answer was yes. Here's what he's saying. They would rescue their own sheep in distress... But have not Jesus heal this man with a withered hand? Disconnected. Completely removed from the heart of God. Willing to break Sabbath for the sake of a sheep 
but desiring to condemn Jesus for doing an act of good on the Sabbath. They showed, they shown the place of value within their heart. Their own livestock over someone else. Verse 12, Jesus says, of how how much more value is a man than a sheep? That's he's he's condemning them in their own heart right there. He's not he's not trying to give some theological greatness about that the, the value of a man is greater than a sheep. We all know this. The problem was the Pharisees in their heart did not think that way. So he says, man is much more valuable to a sheep than a sheep. So yeah, it's lawful for me to heal his hand right now, today, on the Sabbath, in this synagogue. And so what does Jesus, the Son of Man, do? He exercises his authority as Lord of the Sabbath. In a similar way, when he was around, I don't know if they called them Pharisees in chapter 8 or if it was just uh, Jews. Or no, chapter 7. Uh, when he, he declares that your sin, uh, to the paralytic that your sins are forgiven. And, and they say, who can forgive sin but God? Why can't I find it? Scribes. Scribes. That's what it says. Scribes hung out with Pharisees. Same crowd. What does he do? He then exercises his authority, right? And says, take up your bed and walk. And he gets up and walks. So to exercise his authority as Lord of the Sabbath, what does he do? He heals on the Sabbath. He puts into vision into full view who he was, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, putting them, you would think, in their place. But how does it finish? Verse 14. Well, let's just read 13. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored, healthy like the other. But healthy not were the Pharisees. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Disconnected from the word, disconnected from the law, disconnected from God, unwilling to surrender to the authority of the Son of Man. So what do we do with this? Three points, three things. And I... this. Take this as perhaps a bit of correction and redirection. All right? We all need correction and some redirection now and then. The phrase, have you not read, comes up twice in this chapter, in this section. And so I just ask you, have you not read? We must understand that their disconnect from the word happened even though they knew well the scriptures and the law. So how much more disconnected would we be if we not even read them? Or we get stale in reading them. We must not 
be disconnected. When we're disconnected from the scriptures and from the law, ultimately we're disconnected from God. Have you not read? We must read. We cannot rightly divide the word of truth as we were uh, speaking about in Sunday school if we do not read the word. And there are many things that we think we need. Sleep, coffee, breakfast, the last episode of that Netflix series. There are many things we think we need, but the thing we need most is every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word. Let us take up and read. He also asks, so that was number one, let us take up and read. Number two, he asks, do you not understand, or if you would have understood? There's one thing to read, and then there's another to understand. Now, I've hammered that home plenty, but here's what I want to express to you because I think this was the point Jesus was trying to make. They had read, they didn't understand, and it made itself known in how they were behaving. They had read, they didn't understand, and so their life was actually contrary to what they had read. True knowledge is manifested in your living, and in this case, their engagement with others. In this case, they're condemning the guiltless. We walk on we walk a fine line when we start to bring about judgment upon anyone without true understanding of the law that we use to condemn. Oh, man. Was it the Sermon on the Mount? The measure with which you judge. There it is. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And we know what Paul thinks about that. When he writes to to Rome, and in the start of the second chapter, he presses upon the Jews in the audience. Oh man, everyone... Whom, who you judge, or therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves? that you will escape the judgment of God. 
Do you understand the standard and burden that you put upon people? Usually you might not even say it out loud, but you judge them in your heart. Don't forget Colossians 2.16. You might be judging on the basis of a shadow and not on the substance of Christ. A little bit more about that in a minute. Do you understand what you read? What didn't come out of the Pharisees under or the, out of their reading, what showed in their lack of understanding, was their, their lack of piety or godliness and mercy. And this is why Jesus said to them, I desire mercy. I desire mercy. Love. The true understanding you get of the law and the word always aligns with the desires of God. Mercy and not sacrifice. Love, not ritual. Do you think God was pleased with the priest for giving David the holy bread when they were hungry? Yeah. Because they were acting out of mercy. They didn't say, oh, no, 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 David. That's the showbread. No, 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 David. That's wrong. David and his men were famished. And so in mercy and love, they acted. God wants a living sacrifice, not a dead one. Uh, he called he called Israel to give a lot of dead sacrifices, but as they were doing it, they, he was expecting as they laid upon the altar that they uh, a dead animal, they were also laying themselves upon the altar. It was an internal thing, not an external thing. God desires mercy. So we need to know what we we need to read. We need to understand what we read, and it needs to come out in how we live and engage. And today we need to understand what it looks like to get the law and gospel right in today's world. Here's a good, I think, a good way to describe today's, and we'll just say America. We live in a lawless Christian culture. I'm gonna say that again, a lawless. Christian culture. On average, two-thirds of adults in America claim to be Christians. Seems a little weird, doesn't it? So how do we how do we take what Jesus is saying here in his condemnation of these law keepers? the Pharisees, these righteous men? And how do we approach a world that is acting in lawlessness in in the truest sense? How do we not become Pharisees condemning the guiltless while we attempt to try to condemn the guilty? That's sort of 
backwards way of approaching it. We must understand that we need, when we go into the world, in a world that is guilty and in lawlessness, we need to take to them both the law, which which they are breaking, and the gospel. We take to them, this is what God has said, and this is what God has done. And we must take it proportionally. We must lead with the gospel rightly, in right proportion, and then follow with redemption in Christ. And what's that right proportion? That only comes through taking up the book and reading and leaning upon the wisdom of the Spirit. I cannot give you a proportion that says, hammer this much law on them and give them this much gospel. That is given to you by the Spirit, bringing, up, bringing out of you the truth of the Word. Uh, we have to do it within the church. Now, I don't mean Ozark's Bible Church per se, but the church at large. Because there are some who exaggerate law, and there are some who exaggerate gospel. There are churches who are ready to crack a whip like a Pharisee, and there's others who are ready to say, eat what you want, however you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, do this or do that, do that. It doesn't matter because Jesus has abolished the law. Well, we know that's not true. We know that we must find the center. We don't crack the whip like the Pharisee, and we don't throw away the law like the antinomian. But we also take the law and the gospel outside the church. Here's all I want to say when we take the law and the gospel outside the church. Communities and countries cannot be corrected with strictly law. Number one, yes, law helps, law restricts, but if we just take law, if we just depend upon law, we miss the eternal point, and we fall short of our mission. And if we take the law outside the church, and when, when, when the lawbreakers break the law, as we know they will, if our reaction to lawbreakers breaking the law is, aha, true colors, we see you, then we don't give them Christ. They don't receive forgiveness. They have no opportunity for mercy and grace. We also need to remember... A culture, a community will not repent of lawlessness apart from homes and churches repenting of lawlessness. Parenting over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years has abandoned the necessity of law and has elevated mercy and gospel leading to a lawless culture. Our homes cannot be lawless but must have both law and gospel. How do we stay balanced? How do we stay balanced with law and gospel? How do we guard against legalism? And I'll close here with this. How do we keep ourselves from condemning the guiltless? How do we stay away from the ditch of legalism? 
and the ditch of lawlessness. I'm going to say something silly, and I'm only saying it because I want you to remember it. Be a spiritual lumberjack. What do I have in mind? Well, the the passage I just read in Matthew 7. Because as, as Christians, as we walk through, say, the forest or this world, we'll find a speck or two every now and then in other people's eyes. And let me tell you, if we are not spiritual lumberjacks ready to saw and cut down the logs that are in our own eyes, we will, we will live the spirit of the Pharisees. Paul illustrates this to Timothy in 1 Timothy when he speaks about the misapplication of some of the teachers of the law and judgment. And it is almost as if Paul's writing it and he realizes that he used to be one of these Pharisees. And it comes out in that declaration that is sort of confusing to us. As Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Because he says the law is for the wicked. The law is for the adulteress. The law is for the evildoer, the blasphemer. And then he's like, wait a second. I was a blasphemer. An insolent opponent. I was a persecutor. I am the chief of sinners. But the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He has come for the logs and he has come for the specks. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so as we go and live in the world to declare truth, to call people to Christ, to righteousness, we must remember that we all have the same beginning point. We're all surrounded in a forest of sin, and it's not just trees, but the undergrowth is so bad, you can't even begin to cut down your own sin. We all begin in the same place, and we all need to end up in the same place. Paul says it this way, The grace of God to overflow for us. The mercy of God to save us. That's the desire of God. Mercy. You and I have no hope apart from mercy. And so when we live in mercy, we must live by mercy for others. What we receive from God, what we cannot live without, the mercy of God, we live by and we show to others. And we be found in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, how can a man rest or keep the law? Or do good. Or show mercy. 
until he knows the finished work of God in Christ Jesus. There's no law or command that will have its fullest effect on anyone, yourself or other, without first being found in the mercy of Jesus Christ. If all you hear today is this, go home and read Psalm 40 and see the humility of David. The Lord drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. Pharisees have no idea what that means. No clue. For evils have encompassed me by or beyond number. They're like, yeah, look at all these people plucking grain. But they don't see what he says next. My iniquities, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. But it ends like this. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, David says, I am poor and needy. I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Father, help us to live in the, in the mercy of your love. Help us to show the mercy of your love. Help us to judge rightly. And may it begin in our own hearts and that you show us the lawless ways within us. Teach us righteousness. Teach us faith. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.